This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. By the early 70s, the vampire lore and tropes and characters and whatnot at the Hammer Horror Studio uh, certainly wearing a little thin. You know, we've seen Dracula a lot. Uh, We've seen uh, uh, the kiss of the vampire. We've seen, I think, Twins of Evil at this point. We're not really doing this season in chronological order, if you couldn't tell. Uh, But there's there's you know been a lot of of vampire tropes that have kind of permeated all of these movies so how might i ask would we change things up a bit would we make it interesting how about we put the motherfuckers in a circus and they hide in the cover of night as the circus travels from town to town i think that's a pretty cool idea And so did Hammer Horror Studios, as tonight we look at 1972's Vampire Circus. Uh, One of the most uh, creative, if not the most creative, of all the films we're going to cover on this. Season 18, The Vampires of Hammer, on the Seeking Human Victims podcast. Of course, I am your host, the devil you know, the high priest of the covenant of the goat, the Rev Dan Wilson, and I am here along with all of my vampire freaks. Dot com. <laughs> First, Dreamboat Andy. Don't bless me. Pay me. Also, I literally just saw a fucking TikTok about VampireFreaks.com like an hour ago. That's really funny. And returning to the show one more time, the Jackal of Carlsberg, Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Grizzle. Don't bless me. Pay me. <laughs> and, That's the only quotable line in that movie. <laughs> and rounding it out, the one, the only, the great, Muji. I mocked. Your talk of vampires and the Baron's curse. I was wrong. I was hoping he was just gonna round it out with the trifecta. <laughs> yeah, same, 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 same. I was really re I was like, he has the opportunity to do something very funny right now. Some of us writing on our quotes when we're watching the movie, you motherfuckers. <laughs> I literally wrote that down while watching the movie. Fuck you, Muji. Griff Googled that shit. <laughs> the hell I did. Shit. Fuck you, Muji. <laughs> I guess it's fuck Muji night on the Vampire Circus episode. 
uh, more to come. I guess we'll we'll find out more in his final thoughts. <laughs> so, had anybody seen this weird fucking movie? No, this was a first for me. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, ain't no way I would have ever seen this movie before. Yeah, I hadn't seen it either. It's one of those titles that I've heard, you know, muttered a bunch before, and I just kind of assumed I must have seen it, but no, this is the first time. Damn, I was the only one. Shout out to my old pal, Robert Everett. Yeah, I talk about a lot of movies he's recommended me over the years. This was one of them, uh, probably 10, 10 or more years ago uh, that I saw this for the first time. And, um, yeah, liked it then. I thought it was really weird and cool. You know, fucking the weirder the better, especially when you're talking about 70s movies with, you know, scary characters and sinister plot lines and ample nudity. Uh, you know, the, the more bizarre you can get, I'm, I'm all on board. And this one checked those boxes then, so I was interested to revisit it. All right, well, before we do that there revisiting, we were going to uh, pay or be paid a special visit by our musical guest for the week, brought to you by Horror, Pain, Gore, Death Productions. That's Horror, Pain, Gore, Death, dot com. And Big Daddy Grizz is going to tell you about him. Horror, Pain, Gore, Death Productions welcome Art House Fatso to the roster with the debut album, Sycophantic Seizures, a double feature. Hailing from Duisburg, Germany, Arthouse Fatso began in early 2021 and was originally intended as a quick, low-investment project. But soon it became the director's main artistic pursuit. Arthouse Fatso played vicious, experimental death grind fueled by anxiety and a dissatisfaction with capitalism and the current state of cinema. Similar to Orson Welles' illustrious career, Fatso thrived in the contrast between high and lowbrow, between the gutter and the art gallery. Death grind with industrial influences, neoclassical soloing, and at times funky attitude. Arthouse fats so might have their tongue planted firmly in their cheek, but you'd be remiss to take it as a joke project. Fatso are violent, intense, and at times can be as disturbing as they are humorous and have no time to stop pummeling. Sycophantic Seizures, a double feature, presents 17 tracks of death grind, cinephilic anxiety for fans of Terrorizer, Full of Hell, 7-H Target, Macabre, and Anal Nathcroft. All right, here is Art House Fatso with Kenosha. This is Orson Welles. I've spoken these words before, but not on the radio. To be born free is to be born in debt. To live in freedom without fighting slavery is to profiteer. The scaly dinosaurs of reaction, if indeed they notice what I'm speaking here, will say in their newspapers that I'm a communist. Communist, no otherwise. I'm an overpaid movie producer with present reasons to rejoice, and I do, in the wholesome practicability of the profit system. But surely my right to having more than enough is cancelled if I don't use that more to help those who have less. We must each day earn what we owe. A healthy man owes to the sick all that he can do for them. An educated man owes to the ignorant all that he can do for them. A free man owes to the world's slaves all that he can do for them. And what is to be done is more, much more than good works, Christmas baskets, bonuses and tips, and bread and circuses. There is only one thing to be done with slaves. Free them. 
The Coroner's Report. So the Vampire Circus comes to town. Film directed by Robert Young. This was his feature film debut as a director. Uh, the plot resolves, uh, revolves around a traveling vampire circus. No way. Yes, way. It's uh, 1825 is the year it set in where a mysterious circus visits a Serbian village cut off from the world by an outbreak of the plague. And corpses start being found totally drained of their blood. Because, of course, the circus is really a bunch of vampires. And they're actually trying to fulfill a vampiric prophecy. It's a, it's a pretty wild deal. A lot of crazy stuff going on in this movie. Uh, but Robert Young, this first-time director, is brought in. He uh, established himself... Later in his career, in the 1980s and early 90s, as the leading director of British TV drama. But this was well before that. Um, he also directed Soldier's Home in 1977. An episode of Hammer House of Horror as well around that time. Episodes of Minder and Bergerac in the early 1980s. And the acclaimed TV serial The Mad Death, which centered on a rabies outbreak. His best-remembered television work was on Robin of Sherwood, where he directed many of the highest-regarded episodes. He moved back towards black black comedy in the early 90s, directing Jeeves and Wooster and GBH, which was nominated for a BAFTA award. And then he was assigned to direct the movie Fierce Creatures, which was the 1997 follow-up to John Cleese's A Fish Called Wanda. However, it ran into problems and... Uh, Another director was brought in to finalize that movie. He out, <laughs> this is a theme in his career. Spoiler for later. Young did, however, direct Splitting Airs, which starred John Cleese and Eric Idle. Um, he still, to this day, works on television dramas in the UK. So, still around. Career got off to a little bit of a rocky start. We'll talk about that more in the auditorium. The music in this gym was composed by David Whitaker. He was a prolific composer known for his work on several British films from the 50s to the 70s. Uh, many Hammer films. He worked on The Curse of the Werewolf and Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And let's talk about the cast. Adrian Corey played the gypsy woman. Uh, she's kind of the leader of the, the vampire circus, if you will. Uh, she's actually best known for one of her smaller parts, that of Mary Alexander, wife of writer Frank Alexander and Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. She was not originally cast in the film, but was offered the role after two actresses had already withdrawn from the production. One of them, according to Malcolm McDowell, because she found it too humiliating because it involved having to be perched naked on Warren Clark's shoulders for weeks on end while Stanley decided which shot he liked best. Corey had no such qualms about appearing naked, joking to McDowell, well, you're about to find out that I'm a real redhead. <laughs> well, damn. Right on. Uh, Corey earned Kubrick's respect by her willingness to undergo the grueling process of shooting endless takes. She recalled, for four days, I was bashed about by Malcolm, and he really hit me. Once thing was shot 39 times, and he was like, I can't hit her anymore. What a gentleman. 
her film debut was The Romantic Age in 1949. Her other film roles included uh, Laura's Mother in Dr. Zhivago and Dorothy in Bunny Lake is Missing. She also appeared in a number of horror and suspense films until the 1970s, including Devil Girl from Mars, The Telltale Heart, A Study in Terror, and of course, A Vampire Sir. Do you think that's the version of the telltale heart that we had to watch in English class? Or is that... I don't know. I guess I could look. If it was the one from 1960. And she was also in Revenge of the Pink Panther. Chris? Did that telltale heart also telltale if she was a real redhead? (laughs) And then we had uh, Lawrence Payne as Albert Mueller. His film credits included The Trollenberg Terror, Terror, a.k.a. The Crawling Eye. He was also in The Telltale Heart. And Ben-Hur. His TV credits include Z-Cars, Moonstrike, Thriller, The Sandbaggers, Airline, The Saint, and Tales of the Unexpected. He was also a Capulet in the 1976 version of Romeo and Juliet. That was the one we all watched in English class. Yeah, I assume so, yeah. We did get to watch, you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio one. Because we had a cool teacher. Most of these movies that you would watch in English class that were, you know, the versions of the book you just read, it seemed like the fucking teacher had, like, had made a bet of, like, how many of these kids can I make fall asleep today? They would always pick the fucking oldest version, no matter what. Yeah, we watched the Leonardo DiCaprio the modern one, everybody, y- y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, but that was like after we watched the the 1976 one. That was like re- for the class. And then she was like cool and rewarded us with <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio one. And she did. She fast forwarded through this scene. I'm pretty sure y- you guys know what scene I'm talking about. I just know the one from the 1976 version with Olivia Hussey, who later was the scream queen in Black Christmas. A little horror tie-in in this entirely tangential discussion. Back to the cast. Uh, Lawrence Payne also was uh, in three Doctor Who serials, playing a different role in each one. And uh, then we had Thorley Walters as Peter, the mayor of Stittle, very active in the Hammer Horror world, was in Phantom of the Opera, 1962, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, 1966, the lost episode of this season, actually. (laughs) Uh, Frankenstein Created Woman from 1967. Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed from 1969. And, of course, this film, Vampire Circus. He was a close friend of Hammer's most important director, Terrence Fisher. He also played Sherlock Holmes' sidekick, Dr. Watson, in four unrelated films in the 60s. Those were Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, The Best House in London, The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother from 1975, and Silver Blaze from 1977. That's fucking hilarious that there's a movie called The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. Like, I'm, I'm going to have to see what that one's about. Because, like, how is he smarter? Is it like, oh, he's smarter because he's like, lives a normal life? I, I mean, possibly. Or is I he, mean, like, or is he a more clever um, mystery solver? And then we had Lynn Frederick as Dora Mueller. Uh, in a career spanning 10 years, she made over 30 appearances in film and TV. 
for her classic, known for her classic English rose beauty. She often played the girl next door and was famous for her performances in a range of genres from sci-fi to slasher horror, romantic dramas, westerns, a comedy or two. And her greatest successes were in period films and costume dramas. I mean, technically, this is a period film and a costume drama. Indeed. And we had John Mulder Brown as Anton Kirsch. He was born in London, began his career as a child actor. In 1982, he was in Man and Superman, alongside Peter O'Toole, Michael Byrne, and others. Um, his next, he's mainly known for his theater work. His next stage appearance was in the table of two horsemen at the Greenwich theater. Seven years later, they trotted him out for vampire circus and sent him right back to the theater. (laughs) (laughs) We had Elizabeth seal as Gerda Hauser, also known for mainly for her work in the theater. She did win the Tony Award for Best Leading Actress in a Musical for her performance in Irma the Douche. And then we had Anthony Higgins as Emil, probably the most memorable of the the vampires in the Vampire Circus. He's a weird face. He's a creepy-looking fucker. Um, Been in a lot of horror. He was in A Walk with Love and Death in 1969, Taste the Blood of Dracula from 1970, Hadley in 1976, The Eagle of the Ninth in 1977, Love in a Cold Climate 1980, Quartet from 1981, The Draftsman's Contract, Lace, The Bride, Young Sherlock Holmes, Napoleon and Spina Love Story, Sherlock Holmes Returns in 1993, Nostradamus in 1994, Peak Practice in 2000, Chromophobia in 2005, this motherfucker's still going. Heroes and Villains, Napoleon, 2007, Lewis, 2009, Malice in Wonderland, Bellamy, and Tutankhamen in 2016. This brother and his weird face still being a creep, even as an old man, looks like. And then we had Richard Owens as Dr. Kirsch, Dominique Blythe as Anna. Numerous stage film and TV credits, including External Affairs, The Wars, Savage Messiah, Montreal Stories, and Mount Royal. We had Robin Hunter as Mr. Hauser. He was actually the son of actor Ian Hunter and made film and TV appearances from the 50s to the 90s, including Up Pompeii, Carry On, and Sherlock Holmes. We had Robert Taman as Count Mitterhouse, Robin Sachs as Heinrich, who was the twin brother of Helga. Heinrich was a, an English actor, uh, active in theaters, TV, and films, also known for some video game voiceover work. Lala Ward was Helga. She was best known for playing the role of Romana II in Doctor Who. is a reoccurring character from 1979 to 1981. And not a great career biography, but we had Skip Martin as Michael the Dwarf, which really sets the fucking tone when this creepy vampire circus rolls into town, led by a little dancing dwarf clown. He's truly the star of the film. Yeah. You know, if once in your life, you can only watch one movie where you see an evil circus midget get his head bashed into the side of a caravan. It should probably be this one. <laughs> and so then save that for final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> we had David Prowse as uh, the strong man, of course, best known as Darth Vader, or at least the body of Darth Vader, of course, was voiced by James Earl Jones. 
in the original Star Wars trilogy. He was an English actor, bodybuilder, strongman, and weightlifter. Uh, he was also in A Clockwork Orange. Starred in two documentaries about Darth Vader, The Force's Mouth and I Am Your Father. And uh, nice cameo here as the circus strongman. The circus really does have a nice variety of freaks, geeks, and attractions of all kinds. And then we had Mary Wimbush as Elvira, famed film, TV, theater, and radio star. She was nominated for a BAFTA Award for the 1969 film, Oh, What a Lovely War. She was in Poldark, Jeeves and Worcester, Century Falls, and the popular BBC soap opera, The Archers, from 1992 until her death. And we had Christina Paul as Rosa, Roderick Shaw as John Hauser, Barnaby Shaw as Gustav Hauser, John Bone as Mr. Schlitt. <laughs> Why was that so funny? <laughs> That's a Schilt. Oh, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not as funny. <laughs> John Bone as Mr. Schlitt is too goddamn funny. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> and then we had Sibylla Kay as Mrs. Schilt. Jane Darby as Jenny Schilt. I swear they said Schlitt in the fucking movie, but maybe I was wrong. Uh, Dorothy Ferrer as Grandma Silt. And uh, Malovan Vesnich as the erotic male dancer. And then an actress only credited as Serena as the erotic tiger woman dancer. My favorite. That's one of my favorite. That scene is, it's something else. Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) And then we had uh, Sean Hewitt as the first soldier. And David DeKaiser as the voice of Mitterhouse's Curse. Uncredited. That uh, erotic Tiger Woman dancer scene, you might have say that uh, Muji's midsection found that very odd and interesting. <laughs> he might have, and if we were kicking to the auditorium right now, I would. But we've still got to do the shooting dates and locations. <laughs> Shit! <laughs> so, um... <laughs> this... Shooting dates and locations. Uh, production began August 9th, 1971 at Pinewood Studios. Where else? Now, so uh, I'm going to give you a chance to make the save, Muji. Listen, I'm, I'm teeing it up here for you. First time director Robert Young was unfamiliar with Hammer's tight production schedules. And at one point he used up some 500 feet of film stock while trying to get a tiger to sink its teeth into a fake human arm stuffed with pork. It finally bit after beef was substituted. So in that, filming was stretched from six weeks into seven weeks, and then the production was shut down, and the footage was given to editor Peter Musgrave with instructions to make a finished film out of what he had. So uh, with all of that said... Uh, production ended somewhere mid-September of 1971. That's pretty odd and interesting. Not as odd or interesting as my weird tiger lady boner, but what can you do? <laughs> you could, could have said like something about speaking of mid sections of things, you could you could have worked it out, Muji. Come on, try harder. Maybe if you put some beef down there, she'll bite into it. <laughs> 
like something about, about beef into the t- with the, to get the tiger. You, you know, it's there. And with those numerous attempts at odd and interesting facts, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. Mention it was shot on Pinewood Studios actually used the exact same set as Twins of Evil from 1971, which we will discuss on the show. Next week, actually. Spoilers. Some key scenes due to the aforementioned overshooting schedule actually never got filmed. So I can only imagine what other kind of crazy shit they had in mind for this thing that we didn't even get to see. Yeah, considering what made it in. There was an organization called Billy's Smart Circ... I'm sorry, Billy Smarts. I assume that was his name. Smart, S-M-I-R-T, apostrophe S. Circus who provided a number of the extras, the circus performers, and the background artists. This is Dominique Blythe's first feature film and her only on-screen nude scenes, though before she started acting, she did perform totally nude in the play, Oh, Calcutta! Is that like Oklahoma? Similar, I think, yeah. (laughs) The nude version. Apparently, Lawrence Payne was an 11th hour casting replacement for Anton Rogers, who had to drop out due to illness. The voice who was credited as David DeKaiser was um, was actually, yeah, he dubbed over the voice for Robert Tateman. I'm sorry. The uh, the Serbian town's name, Stettel, is an anglicization of Stettel, a Yiddish word meaning a Jewish village in Eastern Europe. This would seem to suggest that the townspeople are, in fact, Jewish, but apparently not, as Stettel has a priest and not a rabbi. David Prowse was not only Darth Vader, he was also Frankenstein. His monster. In the 1970 horror of Frankenstein, as well as the 1974 Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. This is also uh, the film debut of Lala Ward. And uh, Malovan, Vesnich, and Serena both received introducing credits for their aforementioned spectacular performances. This is also Jane Derby's first and only role. And it was given Italian censorship visa number 62804. So, not a film without some controversy. It uh, shook a few trees and ruffled a few feathers, so to speak. But to uh, ask the age-old question that the famed wrestling poet, Wildfire Tommy Rich, might ask, did they make any money? And we're about to find out. Let's look at the numbers! Numbers of the All right, numbers of the beast. There are none. <laughs> we don't know the box office of this movie. Uh, you have to imagine they probably went over budget at least a little bit since they got shut down. Um, I don't think that you just tell them to stop filming and then say, we're just going to cut this fucker up into some type of movie if you're under budget. 
Yeah, so uh seems like it did pretty well, but they didn't uh, they didn't put it out there, so you know, who knows. Likely had a budget in the low six figures and uh, achieved moderate box office success is about all we can tell you. What's the critical consensus? About 80% right now rocking on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the monthly film bulletin said Robert Young manages to use the basic situation to establish a delicate fairy tale atmosphere, and he's greatly aided by some unusually restrained performances from the women in particular. There's a sense of dreamy isolation as the circus performers gradually take over the imaginative life of the community, isolated from the rest of the world by plague. Certain scenes in the film, the aerialists changing back and forth into bats before dumbly, the dumbly applauding villagers, the mirror maze in which victims catch a glimpse of their own deaths, achieve a genuine strangeness. The effect is, however, only fleetingly sustained as the plot finally succumbs to the formula. The various cross-brandishing climaxes seem unfortunately limp in the context of the earlier part of the film. The struggle between John Mulder Brown and Robert Taman has none of the elegant panache of the Cushing versus Lee confrontations, while the fashionably overt sexuality of the vampires, who tends to come out with hastily inserted explanations like, one lust feeds another, proves the real encumbrance to the plot's more intriguing aspects. All Movie called the film one of the studio's more stylish and intelligent products. Pop Matters called it one of the company's last great classics. Erotic, grotesque, chilling, bloody, suspenseful, and loaded with doom and gloom. This is kind of the experiment in terror that reinvigorates your love for the scary movie art form. Uh, critics at the time of its release, not so glowing. New York Times said it was, uh, they dismissed it without even the courtesy of a proper review in favor of Countess Dracula, with which it shared a double bill. It says, uh, wise horror fans will skip Vampire Circus and settle for Countess Dracula. Uh, the monthly film bulletin praised the delicate fairy tale atmosphere. The Los Angeles Times was fairly positive, calling it a true chiller with lots of real looking teeth, believable gore. And a cave, and, and save for a very lurid ending, a lot of pace, a certain sense of subtlety, and a definite, consistent style. Has so, that person ever seen real teeth before? <laughs> this was the 70s. Give him a break. <laughs> like these motherfuckers weren't mystified by <laughs> the most rudimentary special effect. Um, does it have a legacy beyond just being a weird little guy in the hammer? pantheon of horror movies a little bit it had a novelization in 2012 oddly weird time to put that out but kind of cool um, it was also adapted into a 15 page comic strip for the house of hammer volume 2 number 17 from 1978 so uh yeah it, it actually made it into some other media surprisingly which i find kind of cool and uh that's where it leaves us, though. There's, you know, not it's kind of a little hidden gem you got to seek out. So you should seek it out. Well, that comic was drawn by Brian Boland, which is pretty awesome. Was, was he a, one of the Watchmen guys? Uh, he was the Killing Joke guy. Oh, the Killing Joke. That's fucking right. Hell yeah. All right. Well, um, as you can see, uh, there's some things you can own. And some of those are the home videos themselves, and Annie is going to tell you about it. Yeah, so it was first released on VHS in the United Kingdom in the early 1980s by Video Unlimited. 
This release was followed by releases in the United States by Embassy Home Entertainment and Prism Video in 1985 and 1988, respectively. And then in 1993, Anchor Bay Entertainment released a remastered version of the film on VHS and Laserdisc. And then it uh, sat around for a little while and it was first released on DVD in the United States in 2000 by Image Entertainment. And that was followed by the remastered version in 2004, again by Anchor Bay. And then in 2010, Synapse Films released a Blu-ray DVD combo of the film. And uh, it's it's currently available to stream on multiple platforms, um, including Prime, Hulu. It's also available on YouTube. I think we watched it on one of the free streaming platforms with commercials, maybe? Or did we watch it on Prime? That was on two, uh, free V, the, which is just the Prime commercial-supported thing. And then it's also on 2B and plex and maybe pluto tv as well it's good they just kind of license the shit out of it where all of the the various ad supported things are they're going to take every dollar that they can get off of it and then of course on top of the um official releases it's been put out a number of times unauthorized um but so there's a lot of bootlegs apparently of this movie um not really sure why, but a lot of them. Uh, so, but it's it's noted that they're very poor quality and should be avoided. So, just uh, it's free, so don't buy a bootleg unless you're like I don't know getting it if you like collect that type of thing or something. I don't know. I saw a tweet from just earlier today of Stephen King grapping about trying to watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on preview because there's commercials. Um, you have a hundred million dollars. Buy some fucking four K, Steve. Right? Like, what are you doing watching free streaming platforms? Sure, you got a gold-plated fucking home theater, Steve. <laughs> you fucking sell books, physical books. Buy some four Ks. <laughs> Bye. We love you, Steve. But goddamn, come on. All right, well, that's going to close the curtain on the vampire circuit. And them some bitches are rolling out of town. But before they make tracks, we're going to give you our final motherfucking thoughts on Vampire Circus from 1970 Dose. Um, I, yeah, I still love this fucking weird-ass movie. I mean, what's not to love? Like, I don't know, man. If you can't be entertained by a movie with a little evil dwarf clown and fucking Darth Vader as a goofy brain dead strong man, uh, a, an erotic tiger vampire dancer, uh, fucking like crazy twins, like fucking crazy animals, tigers and panthers and goddamn, I mean, this movie's got it all and an ample. Uh, eroticism, uh, lots of blood. I mean, it's just, it's a good old time. Five fucking stars from the Rev. Vampires, maybe the greatest Hammer movie ever made. Yeah, this movie's weird as shit, but it's also super fucking fun. Um, I mean, it, it within like two minutes of the movie, I was like, oh, I bet here's what's gonna happen, and then that's precisely what happened, but that's 
totally fine. Um, you don't have to worry about the story when you already know what's going to happen. You can just watch it, all the weird shit happening instead. And that's more fun. Um, also, I already forgot his name. Um, weird looking guy. Um, he was he was like a like a jaguar. And he had this like rhinestone collar that was like, that shit was dope. And then when he turned into like human form, he was still wearing it. Like, come on. That is that's an iconic moment right there. Um, every single, um, like, bite scene was hilarious. Um, the faces that they make to, like, bare their, their fangs, their super realistic teeth, um, so good. So good. And then freeze frame on it. Oh, it was uh, so good. The, the, the acrobats turning into animals in front of the villagers and then just being like, yes, this is a normal circus act. That is normal. Um, good job. Hooray. Um, so crazy. Uh, uh, yeah, this one was fun. Um, we watched it three times. I only watched this one once. Um, I'm not quite as enthusiastic about it as you guys. I did think it was a good movie, but I do feel it was a step down from the vampire lovers. Um, Hearing that several key scenes were left out, that does make things make sense in the sense that some of the movie didn't make sense or seemed a little slapdash. Um, I think the concept is great. I think a lot of things were, you know, very well executed. Had some, you know, the usual performances you get out of English actors, the extra melodrama, like, you know, they're going to act like this is their last day on Earth. But, you know, I thought, you know, the good enough characters, uh, you know, the the vampire circus, which... I do have to point out that the the tigress lady they weren't vampires because they killed them in the end before they left town to to get a nice snack. But um, yeah, uh, as I said before, if purely just to watch a circus magic get his head banged up against the caravan repeatedly, you know, and hear him scream, that tells me what kind of person I am. But y'all already knew that because I've been on this podcast for about five years. Uh, that's fantastic. And if I did watch this again, it would be just for that scene. Otherwise. Um, the name Mulder Brown, that, that should have been like a British detective show. So somebody can yell it, you know, Mulder Brown. But, uh, anyhow, yeah, it's not terrible. It's not fantastic. I don't think it's Hammer's best, but it's also probably not their worst. That's probably yet to come. So I'll give it three and a half stars. I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. Um, you know, it was nice to get out of the, uh, the same, like kind of semi formulate movies we've been watching you know, which I like most of, but, you know, take the vampires out of the castle, you know, out of the old, you know, weird little towns and uh, get out on the road here. So that was fun. Um, you know, there's just a bunch of fucking weirdos in this movie and you're going to show me a horror movie with a bunch of weirdos and, you know, some eroticism, some beautiful chicks. And, uh, yeah, like you said, the, uh, the dwarf guy that helps. <laughs> you know, if you're looking for a weird uh, horror movie to watch, I thought this was a pretty good one. All right. Well, mostly seeking human victims approved trip to the circus. And we will be back next week with yet another trip into the Hammer Vampire Lore. It actually lied to you. The, it'll be week after next that we do Twins of Evil. 
looking forward to that one but we got a really good one coming up next week not even really a vampire film at all but we included it because hammer did they included it in their the marketing they tried to make it but the movie we're talking about next week is actually a movie about the the great countess elizabeth battery uh but of course in hammer fashion they had to find a hook and they didn't think that story was very marketable so they called the movie countess dracula uh we all know elizabeth battery not actually a vampire and that they don't try to make her so uh so but you get a pretty awesome recreation of that story starring who the great ingrid pitt once again returns to seeking human victims next week as we watch Count Dracula on Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life at Seeking Human Victims. Seeking Human Victims. written, edited, researched, and directed by Dan Wilson, with assistance by Fuji Grant and Annie Wilson. Original music is provided by Shredderford, as well as K.D. Grant. All other music and audio clips are property of their respective owners.